This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 495 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jared Alden. Now, Jared is a veteran firefighter in Ohio and also a member of the SWAT medic program. So we discuss a host of topics from one of his early roles working with juveniles, the difference between violent criminals and sexual predators, how tactical medicine unified FD and PD in his department, the world of terrorism and explosives, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Hit subscribe, leave feedback. I do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating on all these platforms elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jared Alden. Enjoy. Well, Jared, I want to say, firstly, welcome to the Behind the Show podcast. James, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a total honor. Um, you and I have met before, and I was, uh, just like you said, last month, the stars kind of aligned, and um, 
you know, we, we met via Instagram, via through my wife who found you and said, Hey, this guy's pretty cool. He reminds me of you. And just with his, uh, training acumen and how he always wants to do the right thing the right way, just like you do. And, um, uh, I DM'd you, even though it was kind of against my will, my wife's like, just DM him, you know, maybe he'll call you back. Maybe he'll text you back, whatever. And I think you returned, uh, the DM back within 30 to 45 seconds. I was like, wow. You can his phone number. <laughs> so yeah, then I called you after my week of training. I was in uh, doing some tactical training in Sandusky, Ohio and, and, uh, came back and called you and you're like, Hey, I'm going to be in North Canton. Let's, let's do a podcast there. So yeah. And that was where we first met and I was, it was, it was great, but Hey, this, this is a, this is a good redo. Yeah, absolutely. So for people listening, we initially did it in, um, in my, yeah, my sister-in-law, excuse me, um, in their home. And it was a great chat, but we had a rainstorm. We had people suddenly decide to mow their lawn right when we were out there. Um, so it ended up being a bit of distraction. And, you know, I think we missed a couple of things in the conversation. So we decided to do it again, which I think is brilliant. Um, so for everyone listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? On planet Earth, you're finding me in the northwest area of Akron, Ohio. It's called Wallhaven. So, yeah, Akron, Ohio. Beautiful. And now, as you know, I like to go chronologically. Tell me about your parents um, and, and your early life. So where were you born? What did your parents do? How many siblings? I was born in Springfield, Ohio, uh, which is in between Columbus and Dayton. It's a small city. Uh, it used to be a lot bigger back during the uh, industrial sort of um, industrial age when, when things were booming that, you know, in, in, in that manner. Um, but it kind of, kind of shrunk over the years. I'm not sure what their, uh, what their census is now, but I was born in Springfield, went to, uh, uh, Northridge elementary, Kenton Ridge high school, um, played basketball, football and baseball. Um, and then just kind of started to focus more on, on football after that. Um, but then my dad, uh, Bruce Alden, uh, he was a, a life insurance salesman for 32 years. I mean, the guy, the guy could sell a, uh, you know, catch a popsicle to a lady in white clubs. Um, I mean, he really could. He, he could sell anything to anybody. Uh, my mom, she was a nurse's aide, worked with the elderly, does really well with uh, the elderly and, and uh, people with dementia, which is really hard to work with. So bless her soul for what she did there. And she still continues to do with some people. Um, and then my brother, uh, Preston Alden, he's a nurse uh, down in Springfield, Ohio, and has a uh, nice family, two girls and a, and a wife. So, yeah. And then I ended up moving here to Akron. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with my wife, I met her when I was in graduate school. But we'll get that get to that later, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So with your dad, um, you know, an interesting thing that I kind of came across the radar was how horrible we are at branding in police and fire. You know, I mean, for example, in the year twenty twenty one, no civilian should be saying, "Why is there a fire truck on my medical scene?" Because we've been doing EMS and fire for you know, most of the U.S., um, you know, it started, what, 60, 60 years ago or so? Um, so, uh, or 50 years ago, excuse me, the 70s. Um, so, clearly, we're not delivering the message very well of what the modern fire service looks like. With your dad, looking through your eyes now or maybe through conversations, what was it that allowed him to sell so well? What Which elements of uh, psychology had he mastered to get to the point 
of it's, it's not just persuasion it's, it's ultimately showing value in something and i think that's what we're not very good so could you get any lessons from from kind of his his career oh absolutely yeah um my just just real quick my father was the kind of guy where it didn't matter where we went the gas station the mall um retail store anywhere around springfield everybody would see my dad oh bruce hey bruce how you doing you know how you been come over here let's talk i mean there were times where like come on dad let's go we got you know we're kind of in a rush and he's talk 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 um he just had that gift of gab and yes he's always been very persuasive but i think from what he had always told me when it came to sales it's people don't buy your product necessarily they buy you and i i think they just bought into my dad and the way that he articulated and 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 you know his his true care for people in general and i think that's i mean i, I obviously get it from both of my parents because they're both very caring people but um i've all you know just my dad's always cared about people and, and and people feel that you know they can read your biometrics and your kinesics and your you know your body language and, and your para language and things of that nature they can read that and and they know when you're being genuine or not my dad's just always been a very genuine person. He's always been very happy. He's always seen the silver lining in any negative situation. He's always seen the positive in everything. And I think that's kind of where I, I get that myself is from him. And, but yeah, he's, he's been, he, he was such a good salesman. He, he said life insurance sales was, was the hardest sales. I mean, my, uh, my wife's stepfather, Dave Clay, he, he sold uh, life insurance. He sold car insurance, home insurance, things of that nature. And he said, man, he goes, I don't know how your dad did it for 32 years because life insurance is, is tough. Very, very tough. Because, again, you're not just selling a life product, which is obviously long term and can be very expensive. Uh, but you're selling yourself is what you're selling. Yeah. So. See, it's such a unique um, perspective. And that's why I love these like, early life conversations because – you think of leadership, you know, the lieutenants, captains, chiefs that you respect. It is the person. Obviously, it's what they've done. It's how they carry themselves. But overall, it's the human being. It's not the rank. It's whether you know, that Band, Band of Brothers uh, quote is perfect. Salute the rank, not the person. You know, but that's the same, with, you know, with, with the fire service and everything is is how we act as as professionals is what, you know, is the currency that we have. Like we are a drain financially. You know, we don't make money. So ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the person that we put up front and center who is representing us, you know, and and there's unions out there, for example, that have great people on their board and walk the walk. And I've had departments where unions are the worst firefighters that we have that are using, you know, that to, to get around things like fitness standards and things like that. And I'm not trying to union bash, but what I'm saying is that person that we put up front, whether it's, you know, in a fire department, whether it's in, in a presidential campaign, as you said, you're, it's really a popularity contest. So, you know, I, I wish that um, as a profession, we could understand that we can really, you know, we have some phenomenal men and women in the fire service and we should have that brand out there. We should be educating people. We should be showing the, the, the cities and the council members, um, you know, this is the value of what we do and putting that person that walks the walk has the charisma and can show the value of, for example, a 42 hour work week in the fire service. That's going to help we change it because right now I don't see very, very many departments that have great relationships with their citizens and or the the, the council members in the counties or cities. Um, 
I would say pretty much for the most part, the city of Akron has a really good relationship with the with the community. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the Akron Fire Department and the Akron Police Department both have a pretty good relationship with the community. I mean, yeah, there's rifts here and there. Um, last summer was tough for a few weeks, um, you know, during the summer with the uh, some of the rioting. Um, but overall, we have a very good uh, relationship with the community. And, um, you know, Honestly, I, I can't speak intelligently on on our council necessarily on on the backing there. Um, but from what I hear, we do have backing from them. Um, we have a great uh, uh, safety director. His name is just, uh, his name is Charles Brown. Uh, does a great job. He comes to a lot of our trainings. Um, he's right there with us. Uh, he was a former SWAT officer for APD. Um, he did background checks and things of that nature. But uh, yeah, he's been to trainings with us. I mean, you know, there's times when I've I've fought a fire. I've come out. You know, I'll sit all over my all my outfit and uh, all my gear and all over my face and I look over and I see Charles Brown standing right there and he's like hey LT how you doing you know it's like it, it that's pretty cool to see when you got your safety director out there at 12 30 at night or two in the morning and you know you're at a big fire and he's out there supporting you you know and he's taught and he means I, I've said I've seen him and, and other city officials talking to citizens and you know things of that nature um but yeah, I mean, and it's it's going to be different in different municipalities, different cities. You know, I, I again, I can't speak intelligently on different municipi- municipalities or cities necessarily or counties. But I know in the city of Akron, we have a pretty good relationship overall with our community. I would say. Brilliant. So let's let's reverse it then, because I think that's unique and that's fantastic. Um, do you know historically how you've been able to? create good relationships is it is it partly because you have responders that actually transitioned into the political space um yeah we have had responders that have transitioned into like safety forces uh, directors um mayor's office uh up in the city council right now we have a former firefighter uh police officer arson investigator who's part of city council right now so i think that's helped a lot yeah i think that's that's helped a lot that's huge Brilliant. All right. Well, then back to your journey. You, you touched on football. Um, you, so you're a multi-sport athlete. Um, how far did you take your football career and at what level? Um, well, I started when I was in fourth grade and um, I was kind of, wouldn't say pressured into it. Um, I, I grew up in a, I wouldn't say necessarily a, a severely strict Christian family, but just a, a family that, you know, we went to church and it was always, you never hit anybody. And I was always scared to hit somebody. And it, it wasn't because I was scared of being hurt. I just didn't want to hurt somebody else. So my my fourth grade year, I played for the Northridge Bearcats. <laughs> and we had like, the, you know, like Ohio State colors because, you know, down here, Ohio State's really big. Uh, Ohio State University football. Um, so we had the same colors as them. Anyways, um, I was stuck at guard at the guard position. And I was just getting my butt kicked all over the place um, during practices and in games. So finally, my dad. Um, he played some football when he was in high school and he said, Hey, let's go in the backyard, grab your gear. Uh, I want you to get in your four point stance and I want you to hit me. So we went in the backyard and, and I, you know, hit my dad and with my gear on and he kind of threw me around a little bit, but he kind of toughened me up. And, uh, next thing you know, I was doing pretty good. But then the next season in fifth grade, um, I was put at quarterback because the, the junior varsity football coach had said, Hey, I saw you pitching. Uh, cause I was a pitcher. And he said, I saw you pitching. I think you might be a good quarterback. So then they put me a quarterback and then say, la vie, I was quarterback from fifth grade all the way up through high school, through my 12th grade year. I received a um, partial scholarship for athletics and academic scholarship to a college called Urbana University. It's kind of a small division two school. 
played football there for four years, um, lettered there. And uh, so I played um, uh, quarterback and outside linebacker there. Okay, so with you know quarterbacks are known, and again, this is an Englishman trying to d- dissect this, but uh, from what I understand, quarterbacks are known as kind of like the leadership figure again within within the football team. How much of what you learned through that football career did you apply when it came to you know prior prior occupations, but especially the uh, the fire service? Um, well, first off, um, the quarterback has to know not just his own plays and what he has to do. Uh, be it a drop back, seven step drop, a rollout, a handoff, which way do you turn? You have to know what everybody else is doing on your team. So you have to know which way the guard's going to pull so you don't accidentally turn and smash into the guard when he knocks your butt over. Um, you have to know what the tight end's doing. You have to know what all the receivers are running on their routes. You have to know what your running backs are going to do if they're going to go out for a pass or if, or if they're going to block. Um, and you got to make sure they're lined up correctly. I mean, there's numerous times when I would turn around and look and I'd see one of my running backs is lined up wrong. So I had to make sure that he was, you know, in the right position for that, for that particular play. And then I also had to read the defense as well. So I had to read the strong safeties, the cornerbacks to see if they were pushing up on our receivers or if they were backing up on our receivers. Uh, strong safety was always the key because that strong safety, um, depending on what kind of defense they're running, um, they would kind of, it's called stemming. They would stem up kind of like be, uh, beside the linebackers and they would act like a linebacker, like they're going to rush and then that would have to change. So like I would have to change my audible and change the play if I saw the the strong safety creeping up and stemming up, uh, depending on what side, if it was a strong or weak side, I'm sure football players out there probably know what I'm talking about right now. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I would say for the most part, it's, it's, knowing, knowing not just your job but knowing everybody else's job and, and teamwork and, you know, like we call it a huddle, you know, when, when, when you huddle your team up ready for the next play and you have to look in their eyes and, and, and you have to kind of give them that, that oomph, like, Hey, come on, we can do this. We can push this through. And, and they're looking at you. They're looking at you to say, Hey, can we do this? Because, you know, you're not going to execute play if they don't believe that you believe. And I used to always look at my center. I'm like, come on, man. You know, we got this guys. Come on. We got this. We got this. I look at all my guys. Come on. We got this. We can do this. And yeah, I mean, we weren't necessarily the best team, but you know, we made some great plays and things of that nature. But I, I would say for the most part, it was, it was teamwork. That's, that's one of the things for me that I really, really took away from playing football was teamwork, teamwork and work ethic, you know, making sure that I was working with my guys, you know, hundred percent in the off season, lifting weights, making sure I was the first one in the gym every day, um, calling guys on the phone if they weren't showing up, making sure that they were coming. Um, and you know, first one in last one out. That's, that was always my motto. So yeah, I would say teamwork and, and, um, work ethic, I would say for the most part is kind of what I brought into the fire service. Beautiful. It's a great perspective. Well, I know you didn't go immediately into the fire service and you had some pretty interesting chapters prior to that. So walk me through, firstly, let's start with this. What were you hoping to be in high school level? High school level? Um, I know when I was, when I was younger, I wanted to either be in either the fire service or the police service, either one. I, I, I didn't really know which one because as I grew up, I, I think you and I spoke on this before, but I used to watch a show called Emergency with Johnny and Roy, and then I watched Chips with Ponch and John. So it was like, you know, Johnny and Roy are rappelling off buildings and fighting fire and, 
you know, pulling people out of burning cars and then Ponch and John are arresting the bad guy, but still like, you know, rescuing people off the side of the highway. And I was like, man, this is cool stuff. This is what I want to do. And then when I, when I entered high school, um, I kind of, you know, spoke with my parents a little bit more about, you know, what I wanted to do. And they were like, well, if you're going to go to college, maybe try the FBI, you know, that's more of a, uh, collegiate focused kind of, uh, career because it's more investigative and things of that nature. So, um, that was that was kind of my focus was, Hey, eventually I want to get into the FBI. So that's kind of where, that's kind of where that happened. And then, um, so then I, I spoke with my grandfather who actually fought in Pearl Harbor. Um, he said, Hey, you need to go to graduate school. If you're going to, you know, you're going to go to college, you might as well go to graduate school. So, um, I worked at a company called Osalan Services for Youth Incorporated. So I worked with uh, gang members, juvenile sex offenders, things of that nature. And then I ended up going to graduate school. Um, went to graduate school for a degree called Applied Behavioral Sciences. Um, I ended up getting a scholarship there because I was a graduate teaching assistant. Um, so long story short, Applied Behavioral Sciences is like a mixture of psychology, sociology, and, and criminal law kind of all rolled into one. Um, so I figured... You know, my grandpa knows a lot. I mean, he was in his 80s at the time, and he's like, hey, go to graduate school. That's probably your best bet to getting into the FBI. And he was right, <laughs> as usual. Well, yeah. you, you know, obviously touched on one area where you're working with juveniles. And in the previous discussion, I mean, this was fascinating, so I hope we can draw the same things out. Um, but then at that same time, you're also getting into the educational realm and actually being given the tools to start analyzing the psychology of some of these kids. So starting with the gang members first, were you seeing any common denominators that were leading these particular children into the world of gangs? Uh, um, well, Osterlin was more of a therapeutic environment. So in other words, um, we received a lot of our inpatients because they're juveniles so you call them inpatients our, our our inpatients were coming from a place called ohio department of youth services it's called odys so we would have to go pick them up obviously it was with uh security personnel you know some were handcuffed some were not depending on whatever crime that they committed um but they had done their time at odys some were considered safe at the time some were not considered safe um but they came along with a huge packet of information on their background and what they had done. Um, so I would say with the gang members, um, just reading through their files and things of that nature, I would say a lot of their issues were, um, abuse. Number one. Um, I didn't see a lot of sexual abuse. A lot of it was physical and emotional abuse, uh, that I saw. Um, and a lot was they they put a lot of their focus and their energy and what they thought was important into the size of the individual, the strength of the of the individual and kind of kind of like the popularity of the of the individual. Like who was who was the toughest dude out of everybody? And um, that's kind of how they worked. That's that's what they fed off of. There was always a leader. And if if I could get to the leader, then I could get to the group. So that's, that was always my goal. I needed to find the leader of the group. And sometimes it was hard. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes you had that quiet, unsung leader that sat in the back, didn't do much. But then you always noticed, uh, these two tough guys are always going to this guy to get information. Why are they going to him? Well, he's probably the leader of the group for whatever reason. You know, it could have been um, maybe he was just a, you know, a good fighter. Um, maybe he had some connections at home 
they, they called it the outs. So maybe on the outs, they had some kind of connection um, that they, you know, could have benefited some of some of the individuals in there later on once they ended up getting out. Um, but I would say for the most part, yeah, that um, that that commonality was it was that real tough guy perspective. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's interesting. I, I, can't what I, I was just thinking when you were talking, I can't remember who was saying it. Um, it was something that I think it might have even been Sebastian Junger's book, Freedom. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, and he was talking about traditionally, especially more in the animal kingdom, the leader is usually the alpha, the biggest, most aggressive, you know, it, usually male. But as we started creating technology and as intelligence started factoring in, I mean, look at some of the most powerful people now. They're geeks, you know, I don't mean that derogatory, but as you know, what we would know is as the geeky kid that, you know, the, the computer kid that now is flying himself into space because he's got that much money. So well, that's, um, that's what I tell my daughter, you know, she's 15. I'm like, hey, I say, you don't want to go for the tough guy. You don't want to go for the most popular guy. You want to go for the guy that's, you know, studying and, you know, has 4.0 GPA. That's the guy you want to go for later on in life. <laughs> yeah. Well, and an interesting thing, too, and I, I've, you know, from all the stuff I've learned through this when you think of, you know, the the bad boy at school, you know, is portrayed in, in so many films, that's actually the broken guy. When you think about it, if he's doing drugs, if he's riding his bike and you know, kind of an abandoned for his own safety, if he's, you know, shagging everything that moves, whatever it is, he's compensating. So it'll be an interesting lens to look at the trouble kids not as bad kids, but as broken kids. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, I saw that a lot at Osterlin, um, especially, you know, now that you bring up intelligence, which was it, it was an interesting dichotomy to see and to juxtaposition, um, to make a juxtaposition between the gang members that I worked with or the we called them severely emotionally disturbed kids versus the sex offenders, because the sex offenders, they were extremely intelligent. And I'm not saying that the gang members or the SED kids were not intelligent because a lot were. It was just in a different way. But the, the juvenile sex offenders, after reading their files, I mean, they, they had, I would say, IQ levels that were, if not close to genius, they were pretty darn close. I mean, a lot of them had IQs of, you know, 130, 140, 150. And they would do things that, yeah, that you wouldn't believe. Um, Actually, if, if you got a second, I, I got a story for you that I think we spoke on this last time, but uh, we had two individuals who they were constantly fighting and we're like, man, these guys hate each other, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and our um, just let me kind of give a preface to this. Our cottage is what we called it was a locked cottage for the sex offenders. And we had laser beams that went down the hallway. So if their door opened, we would know it, it would alarm like if they tried to sneak out of the room or whatever. Um, so we had a rec room as well. We had a living room and a kitchen and things of that nature. And, and they had a, um, a staff that would bring food up and then we would, you know, serve the food to the kids and things of that nature. And then we have different, um, therapy sessions with these individuals. And then at time we had recreation. So we had a rec room that had ping pong table, pool ball table, you know, foosball and things of that. Um, so one day, um, let's see, we had maybe 20 residents at this time. Um, about 18 residents were in the rec room and well, actually all 20 initially were in the rec room. Well, they started an all out brawl. They started busting pool sticks, breaking windows, busting doors down, throwing pool balls. I almost got hit in the head with a pool ball. Thank, thank God I didn't. Um, so I'm, I'm restraining kids. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, 
handle the situation myself and three other staff members. You know, you got 20 other individuals and these weren't just kids. I mean, we had age ranges from anywhere from 12 to 21 because the 21 year olds, when they committed their crimes, it was before they turned 18. So they were still considered JSOs, not adult offenders. So anyways, these two individuals had set it up so that they wanted to start a brawl in the rec room so that they could sneak off into the washer, into the, uh, uh, washer dryer room and, and have sex. So we ended up finding that out later. So we were fully, full on manipulated there. So they, you know, they, they enacted this huge diversion, uh, so that they could go off and do their thing, even though it was totally unbeknownst to us. It, it totally took us from, you know, uh, from behind. Cause we had no idea. We had no idea. We, we thought these two individuals hated each other, but they were wrestling around and fighting each other because they wanted to touch each other. So, and this was stuff that we learned throughout my tenure there at Osterlin. And, and we had, um, companies come in and train us in, in juvenile sex offender thinking errors. And they have this whole cycle that they go through. And, um, once we finally in, ended up getting trained, we started to realize, Hey, you know, these individuals are severely emotionally disturbed. Um, you know, they have, they have some, some serious issues going on. They, they kind of look at the world through a different lens. Uh, and, and they're, they're just not wired the same, unfortunately. But I think a lot of that has to do, I, you know, cause you asked me this before about their commonalities. I, I think the main commonality that I saw with them is that they never really had true boundaries in their lives. They're in, in, just by reading their files and things of that nature, their, their families just never, um, gave them boundaries. I mean, we had, we had individuals in there who were from very, 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 um, um, uh, affluent families, very affluent families. And, you know, you would think, well, Hey, you, you have everything you want. You're rich. Well, mommy and daddy didn't pay attention to me. They were off doing their own thing and I was left to do whatever. So I, you know, once I, you know, started, started puberty and started thinking about, whatever, then, you know, I, I, I offended, you know, so. See, it's, it's so fascinating just to hear, you know, people's experiences, what they saw with their own two eyes, you know, um, I've had several people from the psychology field and I've asked them when, it, when it's come up in conversation about pedophiles, because we talk so much about childhood trauma and you would assume there was some sort of um, abuse as a common denominator. But there's no doubt in my mind that sexual abuse is definitely one of the common denominators in people that find themselves addicted, people that, um, you know, either attempt or complete suicide. I mean, that's definitely one of the huge things that people harbor. But over and over again, the people told me with pedophilia, it's completely different that often there, there isn't, as you said, molestation, but it's a, it's a completely different alleyway. And, and when you were talking about the high IQ, again, I might be pulling this out of my ass, but I'm almost certain some of the most notorious serial killers that we've had, Dharma and some of these people, also were very, very high on that IQ scale. So it's again, you know, how does that factor in with the intelligence slash social slash morality element within the brain chemistry? But James, I think it's all about manipulation. If, if you look at Ted Bundy, for example, you know, Ted Bundy used to um, work a suicide hotline. I don't know if you knew that. No, I did not know that. Oh yeah, my God. Yeah, that's, Ted, you're unlucky Ted, if you got hold of him. Yeah. yeah, yeah I wanted yeah. to do it. And I wanted, can you leave the phone off the cradle as well while you do it? So I can listen and touch myself. Well, well, hold, on, hold on. No, 
if you if you do some research on Ted Bundy though, Ted Bundy, his colleagues and his coworkers said that he was one of the best. He was one of the best. He stopped so many people from committing suicide. He would talk people down all the time. They said he was one of the best. They never knew that he was out killing and raping women. But he probably had a sense of power, as you said. Oh, oh, you know, I, I controlled that person's life, and, and I saved the life, and I can take a life. Absolutely. And it's a huge form of manipulation. Wow. And, and it's, it's, there was a huge parallel there with, with, with those sex offenders. And, and some of the, I guess, red flags that I noticed with the sex offenders were uh, animal abuse was big. Um, what was the other one? Uh, bed, uh, prolonged bedwetting. We had individuals up into their 17, 18, 19 years old who were still bedwetting. Um, that was another big red flag from some of our research that we did. So bedwetting, animal cruelty, and there was one more, and I, I for some reason, I just dropped that on my brain right now. But, um, but yeah, those those are two red flags. Oh, oh I know what it is. It's, uh, um, <laughs> imagine that, fire starting. Wow. Yeah. Yes, that's- yeah, a, sure. A lot of those individuals would, uh, would commit arson, and, um, you know, they would go find an abandoned building or whatever. They would commit arson, or sometimes they would even light their own homes on fire, um, which is aggravated arson. Then, you know, you have anytime you commit any kind of arson that is uh, close to where people are located, or if people, let's say, a certain like, let's say it's two in the morning, and you know, you have to assume, even though no one may be home, you still have to assume that someone's going to be sleeping in that house. That's still con- considered aggravated arson if you light the house on fire. So, yeah, it's. Um, a lot of those individuals, uh, prolonged bedwetting, uh, arson, and uh, and then the other that I said, animal cruelty. You know. Yeah, and again, two of the three are you know potentially taking lives, and I think that's. I mean, God, yeah. anyone who's cruel to animals, you know, you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror. You know, that's what was so so weird with the whole football thing with the you know the dog fighting and everything. You know, oh, but he's a good football player. No, that's a fucking horrible thing to do you know, get training dogs to, to murder each other, basically, or, or, you know, cockerels or whatever it is. And if you're, that's entertainment to you, then, and I've said this before, you know, question that, but also, and there's so many of us do this. I remember I was deep into horror films when I was in, God, I don't know, like 17, 16. And I had this epiphany one day, and this is way before I entered the fire service. I'm like, why am I entertained by a bunch of kids that go to a cabin and then are slowly mutilated and tortured by the psychopath that lives in the woods you know so i mean we have to ask ourselves that when you've had a you know a rough nine hour day and you're like i just want to go and unwind and watch some cheerleaders get murdered you know (laughs) i mean think about you know so there's we are we do have a very violent um branch to our entertainment and of course through storytelling at times you know it it can can warrant setting the scene i mean i think that you know, when it comes to horror, the more the kind of ghosts and goblins side is, is, you know, I think a little less disturbing. Um, you know, I, sure. I love like The Ring and um, The Grudge. I mean, those are incredible films, but they're not violent either. But yeah, if you're, if you just can't wait for the next Saw movie to come out so you can watch another room full of people, you know, tortured, you kind of have to ask yourself, where's that psychology coming from? Well, I, I think that's also kind of a sign of the times as well. I mean, and you're you're what forty seven, James? Yes, allegedly. Okay. Allegedly, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm allegedly forty six. So just turned forty six on July twenty second. Um, so 
I, I don't know. I, I just remember growing up with, you know, Friday the 13th and Halloween and movies like that. I think that's kind of a sign of the times necessarily. Um, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. But nowadays I, I'm kind of removed from, from kind of what's going on with everything. Um, I hate to say it, but I, I almost have this weird feeling that it's even worse now with what some of our young kids are viewing and, you know, with the dark web and things of that nature, it, it really scares me. Um, you know, just, just to hear some of the horror stories and, you know, like, um, a female got into the dark web and she looked up something and next thing you know, she's kidnapped, you know, things of that nature, that, that, that kind of stuff really, really scares me. Yeah. I remember a very clear memory of, it was in community college. Well, actually, was it, was it sick form? It might be in sick form. So we do, we graduate at 16 and then we can do two more years to, um, do our what's called A-levels that will get us into university. So it was that portion at a different school. And some kid brought in Faces of Death. Do you remember that film? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, awful. So I remember, you know, they were like, oh, can I come watch it? And, you know, this is, again, way before the fire service or anything. And I sat back there for, I don't know, probably six, seven minutes. And I was just so disgusted. And, and it wasn't like I'm so morally above everyone else. It was just like you're watching people die. What part of that... You know, and so, and I remember that now because as I, I don't know if you had the same thing, as I progressed through my career, I don't even, I don't want to see anything. And it's not like I'm triggered and all of a sudden I'm back to some call. It's just that you and I see it for real. And the same reason why I get really fucking angry when someone drives like an asshole, because you and I have cut the family of, you know, a minivan full of kids out of the car that that person killed. So you've seen the next step of that. To me, it's just, you know, as, as I progress, I don't want to see that stuff. I don't want to want it to be glorified what you and I have seen. And it's not cool and it's not entertaining. It's fucking heartbreaking. Sure. And I think I think for younger kids, when it comes to things like that, when, you know, faces of death and seeing, you know, some of these horror films, I think it's more out of just curiosity and just pure thrill. I don't think that they truly believe, okay, this could happen. Like, I don't know. It's to me, it's kind of hard to explain. Um, at least I know, you know, just from my perspective growing up, you know, I just, I couldn't stand watching those films. My, my uncle one time put a movie in called Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then a movie called Pieces. And I just like to this day, if, if I go to, um, uh, one of those, you know, fun houses or, you know, a scary, whatever, scary house, whatever they're called. Um, if I hear a chainsaw, I, I just immediately it just, you know, especially in that context. No, not, you know, not if we have to go cut somebody out with a chainsaw or cut a hole in a roof or anything like that. I, I don't get that feeling. But when it comes to, uh, you know, um, anything like that, when it comes to horror films, when I hear the chainsaw, I'm just, it just kind of freaks me out a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, one more thing. I know we got stuck in this one portion of your career, but I think it's fascinating because, again, you're getting a window to, you know, potentially either incarcerating someone who's a dangerous society or someone that slips through the cracks and ends up, you know, getting hold of a child. Um, what do you see if, if you were judge, jury, executioner for a day? What would be the best way? And I'm talking, hum you know, humanely because these are still people even though they're very very sick what would be the best way of um 
protecting society from pedophiles, but without, you know, some of the medieval solutions that people come up with, oh, just cut everything off and, you know, throw them on an island together or whatever. What, have you, did you ever kind of ponder how we could treat this particular, you know, issue that we have in society? Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of it starts with the family institution. I think that just over the years of my experience and my education and just understanding various inst institutions on the meso level of society. So you have your macro, your countries, your meso would be more like your institutions, like family, media, sports, things like that. And then your micro level, your smaller groups. Um, but I think the family institution, unfortunately, has been broken. Um, in sociology, we have various uh, perspectives and ideologies and uh, theories that we go by. One's called structural functionalism. And in a nutshell, what structural functionalism is, is what's the structure? How does it function? And we kind of focus on the meso level of society. So we, fun we, we, we kind of focus on, OK, well, family is the biggest cog in this machine that keeps society running. Right. And then we have the media, we have sports, um, we have education, we have, you know, just various, various, all these different kinds of uh, institutions that keep our society running, correct? Yeah. So, like, when the family cog in that wheel starts to slow or actually breaks, well, who's got to take over? Who's going to take over? Who's going to take over society? I mean, look at all the kids now that, you know, they have to be fed at school because they can't be fed at home. You know, where's, where's mom and dad? Well, oh, mom and dad aren't here. They're being raised by their grandparents. And it's it's sad to me to see that the family institution has been just so broken over the years. Um, you know, what's, you know, again, I don't want to get political, but, you know, what's what's wrong with the nuclear family? What's wrong with having either a mom and a mom or a dad or a dad or, or a mom and a dad and then the kids? What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's how society's functioned forever. And that's how it should keep functioning. You know, love is love. It doesn't matter who you love. You love who you love. And that's fine. But let's let's maintain our family institution, because when that when that cog and that machine breaks, everything else has to pick up the slack. And again, look at the educational institution right now. The schools, the schools have to feed the kids. The schools have to discipline the kids. Why? Why are schools disciplining kids? Discipline does mean to teach. However, Let's not let's not head down that track. Let's not make that a norm. Right. Let's not make that normal. Let's make a family institution has to take care of feeding the kids, clothing the kids. All right. That that socialization process of of, of how we learn our culture. OK. Needs to be refocused back to the family. Because the family is the strongest. And if that family institution breaks down, like I said, that entire – our society will eventually break down if our family institutions break down. Yeah. No, and I agree completely. I think that's one of the issues that I've seen, you know, again, all these amazing conversations I get to have is – and then you then you kind of go back and, and watch the news, for example, is people will argue over which thing will fix everything. And the the – answer for any of these issues it's not which thing it's multiple things that you stand in the middle you don't you know voice the extremes you find the kind of middle point and you address them all at the same time a perfect example is defund the police you know obviously anyone in the first responder profession knows that we need more money not less usually 
Um, and there are, you know, but there's layers. There's, you know, what's the staffing like? Is this, this officer sleep deprived? What standards were the hiring standards in the first place? Should that person have ever worn a badge? If so, were they trained every year? You know, were they held to a fitness standard, a, a tactical standard, you know, all these things. Um, and I think it's the same with, but, but the, the other side of the coin with that is, you know, what are we doing to minimize crime? Like, as you said, from the, from birth forward. And so you look at drug prohibition, you look at the way that we do prisons here, you look at, you know, maybe some of the, the schools that need more funding, not less, because they happen to be in a poor area, you know? And so there's there's that thing too. And and when- I was just going to- Please, sorry, James. no, jump in. Sorry. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. Um, no, that's that's one thing that I've noticed over the years. And again, just my experiences and, and, and everything that I've studied, poverty breeds crime. It just does. I mean, yes, there are other facets. There are other underpinnings to crime. But if we want to save society, we have to try to figure out how to control poverty. We have to. I mean, yes, there's absolute poverty. There's certain levels, you know, levels of poverty now that sociologists are studying and they're finding out. And I mean, I'm sure last year was a sociologist dream with all the rioting and looting and stuff going on and all the politics and everything. Um, but if you can't control poverty somehow, you're you're just never going to control crime ever. And, and I'm sure that sociologists have employed what we call a correlation coefficient. So a correlation coefficient would be like you have a dependent variable, which, which would be like crime, for example, and you have an independent variable. So you have an independent variable, let's just say it would be poverty. So if poverty goes up, what happens to crime? Well, crime goes up. So you can actually quantify that and you can use a correlation coefficient to where you can actually get a, an, an actual measurement of that. So you could say, well, uh, our correlation coefficient between the rise of poverty and crime for the year of 2020 was a 0.72, which is that's really high for the Pearson's R correlation coefficient. But, you know, it, I mean, it's it's probably even almost too high. But at the same time, it's a positive correlation that is telling you, hey, it's not necessarily a cause, but it, it poverty is having an effect on crime. It's causing it to rise because it's an independent variable affecting a dependent variable. Yeah. And even so, just common sense wise, I mean, take a step back. If there's poverty and people are struggling to get, you know, either the basics or socially match what they're seeing as success, whether it's jewelry or certain cars or whatever it is, either way, poverty equals a desire to seek that thing out, whether legally or illegally. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, and then you have the media that uh, and you have commercials and things like that, that, that kind of bolster that. Oh, well, this is what this is how you want to dress. This is what you want to look like. This is the car you want to drive. This is the girl you want to have. These are the clothes you want to wear. Well, how do you attain those? Do you, is, is it hard work? Do you work your way up and then eventually you get those things? Or do you go and sell drugs or do whatever or go gun run or do whatever? And then next thing you know, okay, yeah, you got all this stuff and uh, you have the, the best car in town and you have the best clothes and you, and, and you got this beautiful woman on your hip, right? But then next thing you know, this individual ends up getting killed. You know, get shot or arrested or arrested. Right. Yeah. Goes to prison or dies. I mean, that's unfortunately, that's just how it is. You know, so I think I think it's a our society needs to shift its importance. What's important in society? You know, and, and I love sports. I love Ohio State football. I love I love to watch Cleveland Browns. But what's more important? Is it entertainment in society or should we focus more on on our family institutions and on what's truly going on. 
it's almost like a magic show the way I look at it. It's like, hey, look over here and watch all these entertainment shows and and get online and and watch football and watch baseball and basketball and kind of be entertained over here. But don't pay attention to what's truly going on over here. You know, and, and you and I being fire medics in the field, we see that we see the worst of the worst and we want to help. That's why we got into this job, you know, not to be cliche and hackneyed, but that's why I got in. I got in because I wanted to make a difference. I was getting sick of sitting behind a desk and crunching numbers and writing papers and blah, blah, blah. I, I wanted to get out there and actually make a difference. And I always knew this was what I want to do anyways. You know, and, and luckily my wife, Sarah, got on board with it. So, <laughs> but, you know, it's just uh, it's just one of those things that you, let's let's put more focus into what really matters in life. Like my wife always says, why are these basketball and football and baseball players getting paid millions of dollars when Jared, you and James and, 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 and police officers and, and military individuals, you know, you guys run into burning buildings and police officers, police officers have to confront terrible individuals that want to kill them um, uh, or, or, or kill their family members. And they have to mitigate that and stop and protect that. And then we have military that, that fight for us overseas. Our military individuals should be coming home to a free home, a free car, you know, but but no. I mean, why isn't that happening? Why aren't individuals who are putting their lives in danger given more, paid better versus entertainers out there? And, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to bash on athletes or anybody who entertains, but where's our focus in society here? Where, where, where's the important, you know, where's the importance? The importance should be, should be focused on who does the best for the human, for the individual, for the family, for society. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And you just, with, with you saying about it being dangerous, I want to, I haven't said this young man's name on, on tape yet, but yesterday we lost uh, Jacob Dindinger. I hope I haven't butchered your name, Jacob, but uh, that was the AMR EMT that was shot in that um, ambush style house fire a few days ago, you know, so 20 years old. Did you say he passed? Yes, he just passed yesterday. So we lost, he lost that fight. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, and this is one, one single life. And you think about all the law enforcement, all the, you know, the firefighters, the EMTs, the, the medics, the corrections officers, you know, the dispatchers, you don't think of it as being dangerous so much, but what they carry home in their head, you know, and then the, the, the abuse of sitting for 12 hours in the darkness day in, day out and, and what that does to them. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it's not about like, oh, they should take the money from professional sportsman A and give it to responder B. It's about the responders are focusing on helping other people. You know, I, I was talked about this with a few people. You know, I do stunts and then obviously I had a career in the fire service. And sometimes in the stunt world, I would see narcissism amongst some of the performers. And it was, I want to be in the spotlight. And then I'd go to the fire station and you know, the best firefighters, it would be all about other people. And I think that's the problem. The America that I came into, I mean, I worked here in summer camp since 94. Um, you know, the American dream as I finally immigrated here or emigrated, um, you know, was a house, a little bit of, of, of a garden and, you know, you raise your kids somewhere safe. When I got here, it was Winnebago's and jet skis and, you know, oh, you've only got a, 2000 square foot house. So oh, I'm sorry. It must be, must suck to be poor. You know, so our, that bar has also been set so high that whether you're 
in some very, very poor area, or let's say that you're not. You're quote unquote, I hate the, the, the class labeling, but say you're what people call middle class. Well, you're scrambling to, to keep up with the Joneses, as it were. So I think that, you know, that capitalism that came out, especially like the kind of yuppie era, the materialistic element of that just, just blew up and we forgot that the most important people are our tribe, are the members of our community, not the shit that sits on our driveway and doesn't get used for 11 months of the year. Absolutely. No, I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I, I think we need to embolden each other. Um, you know, not just in our own small micro tribes, like with our families, but extend that out, transcend that, transcend that out to other people. And that's, that's what I try to do. And, and I know my crews, we try to do that, especially like on med runs, for example, if we see someone struggling, we notice someone struggling. Sometimes we <clears throat> will use humor. If we notice that somebody, you know, might be an individual who might be a little violent or might be a little upset with us for whatever reason, you know, again, we might use humor. We might use, um, you know, some other, I, I guess, defensive tactics for lack of a better term, but let's, Let's try to help each other and embolden each other, again, not just at the family level, but also in our communities. And, and I think if you start to see people in communities start to help each other more, I think you're going to see a much better society. I mean, obviously, that makes sense to me. Um, but the question is, how are we going to do that? How are we going to get people out there to open up and say, hey, you know what? You know, do we need some kind of monetary program to start? Do we need um, you know, more of a uh, community policing and fire presence so that people actually know what we do. I think that's another huge uh, facet to this too, at least on, from a fire uh, police perspective is let's let people really know what we do. And I think if they know what we do and we can articulate that to them, I think we're going to have a much better all around, around the United States and maybe the world is have a much better uh, relationship with our communities. And like I said, Akron's pretty good right now. I mean, we're so far, I mean, yes, you know, we, we have had, um, we've had, we have had a few murders in the city. That's, uh, it's, it's, it's on the rise. Um, and I'm not going to get into all that right now and, and the reasons why. Um, but, uh, for the most part, the Akron fire department and the Akron police department have a good relationship with the community and with each other. Um, and one of the main reasons why we have such a great relationship with each other is because of our SWAT medic program. Um, but that right there has extended into our community seeing that and our community seeing that, yeah, we are one, we are connected and we all, you know, I mean, cause again, as you know, as a fire medic, you're not going to go into a, a dangerous scene without police presence. You're, you're just not, you're not going to, I mean, we had a situation just recently where we went into a situation where they just wanted someone to respond and we responded and it, it got a little hairy. It, 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 it almost came down to blows and luckily PD arrived on time. Um, but yeah, I think, I think just as humans in general, I think if we can really put ourselves out there and I think a lot of it could be egotistical as well. It's just, you know, you want to save face. You don't want to hurt your ego. You don't, you know, you don't want to hurt your pride. You, you know, everybody has pride, but if we can put ourselves out there, and say, you know what, I'm going to help this individual, I'm going to help this family, and we're going to come together as one, I think that would help. Yeah. That would help. Well, I think with ego as well, one of the big barriers is, you know, here I am. I'm just a, literally just a firefighter. There's nothing special about me whatsoever other than I chose to buy a microphone one day and have conversations and share them with the world because the people that I was interviewing, I know had answers to things that we were struggling with, whether it's within the fire service, whether it's, you know, 
um, nationally or even internationally. So I've had, you know, people from Portugal talking about their incredible success with drug prohibition or the, you know, the removal of, um, you know, the, the, the teacher from Finland talking about the reason that they are always at the top of the, the global charts when it comes to education. And it's because they look at the person as a whole person, not passing standardized tests. Um, you know, Norway, their, their prison system. I think that f- at bare bones, the, the basal version of the NHS in England is by far the best healthcare system. We all chip in. Hopefully we don't use it. And no one has to worry about if they get sick or get run over by a car. It's that fucking simple. So the first person you see in a, in a British hospital is a doctor or a nurse, not an admin person asking for your social security numbers. So they can start the billing process. So, you know, it's, there's all these different things. But again, what gets in the way is ego, especially if you're beating your chest and telling the rest of the world that you're the best country in the world. Because newsflash, none of us are. So get over yourself. You know, have the humility to learn whether it's from other fire departments, whether it's from other countries, other governments, and share knowledge and find out, like, you know, why doesn't Norway have gangs murdering each other on the streets? It's got people. We've got people. What the hell are they doing right that we're doing wrong? You know, so those are the conversations we need to have, too. Absolutely. And, and learn, learn from your failures. And, and that's, that's one thing that I learned throughout school growing up and, and throughout, you know, playing sports, football, things of that nature, um, uh, you know, in the fire service as a SWAT medic, you know, learn from your failures and, and, and own up to them. And, and, and again, you know, we talked about the macro, the mezzo, and the micro levels. You know, we're down more on the mezzo level here, or I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, on the micro level. But, you know, even as a country, learn, let's, let's just learn from our mistakes and, and just admit to it. You know, and again, that's where all the politics come in. Well, you can't say this because of this. And, you, you know, if you say it this way, it's going to be affected this way. And, you know, I'm not up on that level. So, I, again, I can't speak intelligently up on that high level, um, on that macro level. But at least down on my level, learn from your mistakes, admit to them. And, and you're going to learn so much more just by saying, hey, you know what? I messed up. I messed up. And it's not going to happen again because I'm going to go back to the drawing board and I'm going to train I'm going to learn more. I'm going to read more on it. And, you know, next time this happens, I'm going to pull from my mental schematics, from my mental Rolodex, and I'm going to apply it to this situation. I'm going to apply it to this problem. And guess what? You know, it's going to work this time. Well, look at the most successful business people. What's their, their core lesson to the world? Own your shit, own your mistakes, and be humble. That could sum up extreme ownership or, you know, some of these other great texts that are out there. And of course, there's, there's a lot of how-tos and storytelling that really help hammer that home. But ultimately, it's, it's okay to screw up. And that's what gets me on the fire ground where people are afraid to truly train, set that bar high, put people under stressful conditions and incrementally work up to where you're successful. Because, but the fire ground is where, excuse me, the, the drill ground is where you should be making mistakes and it's okay. But then you go back and fix those mistakes and you do that scenario again and you run it until you get it right. Now, it's not going to be perfect and it's certainly not going to be perfect on a real life fireground. But my goodness, you're going to be so much better and so much further ahead than the first time you've done that scenario is when someone's hanging out of a building. Absolutely. Um, training is huge. And, and as you know, training has to be as realistic as possible. 
we have to almost mimic it to the T if we can. And we have done it before with, you know, especially on the medical side, it's a little bit easier on the fire side. It's, 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 it's really hard, but like, you know, I mean, if you have live burns, you know, it's still controlled. Right. But like one thing that I always tell my guys, and, and I learned this through training with, uh, uh, tactical EMS training with FBI training with, um, uh, various individuals from other companies that I know is employ something that I like to call and that is also used in the tactical side is it's called tactical patience. You know, yes, fires do double. Well, they say they double every minute. Now I guess the research, the research is saying that they don't double every minute, but it's still, you know, everything now burns a lot faster than what it used to. Right. Just because of all the different, uh, you know, stuff that's used, all the chemicals that are used to make couches and furniture and things of that nature. So fires, fi- fires are, they burn a lot faster and hotter than what they used to but still employ some tactical patience. When you arrive on scene, take a deep breath, jump out. If you got your pack on, that's fine. Throw your pack on if you don't, you know, because some rigs have packs on the side. Throw your, throw your pack on, do your 360, get your assessment, size it up, and, you know, hey, slow it down for a second. Do it the right way, right? Do the right thing the right way. Don't just, you know, haul butt in there, and next thing you know, you're falling through a floor, and, they, and then you're calling a mayday. You don't want to do that. So that's what we like to call on the fire now. And then also on the tactical EMS side is just employ a little bit of tactical patience and, and, you know, be safe. That's the main thing. Be safe, scene safety, situational awareness. So. And I love that perspective though, because when it comes to one of the bullshit arguments against clean cab, and when I'm talking about clean cab, I'm not pretending that you're, the rig of your vehicle is now going to be surgically sterile. But I'm just talking about common sense. Let's store the packs off the rig because I'm a firefighter too. The number of times that I've, you know, had to take my seatbelt off or we're bunkering up on the way to a fire or, God forbid, I've actually clicked it back in or my headphones have got stuck in it, all those kind of things. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I've had those idiot moments over and over again. But there's this pushback to, you know, what's a very, very good idea coming out of Sweden of, you know, clean cabs, stop grabs, which I think is the most fucking ridiculous statement you can make. Because if you're, as you said, if you're leaping off a fire engine or truck and then heroically diving into a building, you are a fucking idiot. Just like you said, that tactical pause, whether it's at the firefighter level, making sure that all your, you know, that you're zipped up tight and checking your partner, that your, your tank is on, all the things that you are taught to do since day one in the fire service. Or if you're, you know, the engineer doing, doing your kind of checks before you start sending water, whether you're the LT or captain doing your 360, no one should be flying off a damn engine into a building. So as you said, you have time while you're doing any of those things to swing, whether it's, you know, leap into some, some boots and throw them over your shoulders, you know, buckle up your jacket and then throw a pack on. Or if it's, you know, already clean, if you, if you're doing the clean cab, you have clean gear on. So you did bunker up at the station and you're literally just throwing a pack on your shoulders. But I was a tiller man in California. You couldn't have your pack in the doghouse in the back. So you had to pack up. It takes like three and a half seconds to swing it around and snap two thing, you know, two clip or snap one clip and then cinch everything down. So I love that you, you kind of, elaborate on that because there's this myth that we're you know some like prima ballerina leaping off the rig and then into you know a building and coming out with a baby and all these you know 
people taking pictures of you. The reality is, as you know, you have to pause. You have to take that moment. You have to listen to what your orders are in the first place. Where does your LT even want you to go? What do they want you to do? So you have so much time. And I think that tactical patience is a great way of stamping, you know, this is the perfect time to throw whatever gear on that you've kept outside the rig because it's safer, period. Absolutely. Well, like I always tell my guys, I'm like, you know, CWR, crawl, walk, run. And that's kind of how I teach my guys. I'm like, on the company level, we're going to crawl first and we're going to pull lines slowly. Um, you know, we're going to put it into pump slowly. We're going to hook up to, you know, if, if, if we're setting up on the hydrant or if we're, you know, uh, shagging the hydrant or if we are catching the hydrant or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's called different things in different areas. But Did you say shagging the hydrant? Yeah, yeah. That's what you guys call it? That's what we call it. We, and, and we couldn't call it that in England. Otherwise, it would be completely misconstrued. <laughs> I knew I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I don't know if you want to edit that or if you want to keep it in there for some levity and humor. But uh, yeah, it's it's we call whenever whenever you pull past the hydrant and you haven't actually caught the hydrant, you can shag to it. So you grab your yellow tail, your five your five inch, and you pull it back to the hydrant. That's called shagging. The gotcha. At least an act. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you said been, that. <laughs> yeah, must have been from some Englishman that came in and and uh, and coined that term, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think any of those outlets would be any good for me anyway. They're far too big. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good one. No, but uh, no, but we always say crawl uh, and then walk, run. So you know, we're going to start out. We're going to pull slow. We're going to pull, uh, you know, our inch and three quarter or our two and a half slow, um, and we're going to get the techniques down. That's the main thing. Get the techniques down build that good muscle memory so that you don't have training scars. So that's, that's the term that we like to use in SWAT as a SWAT medic. And then also on the fire grounds is you don't want training scars because when you get training scars, guess what happens? That's when you cut corners and you don't want to cut corners. You want to do, you know, just like, um, let me see if I'm going to make sure I'm going to pronounce his name properly. Mark Polymeropoulos says the process monkey. And I did read his book, great book. Um, process monkey you know make sure that you do your tactics the way that you're supposed to do them and yes there are gray areas where you may have to uh i wouldn't say cut corners but sort of bend things here and there to make sure that it fits but that's that's what uh analyzing the scene is all about that's what situational awareness and scene size up is all about because yeah we do have algorithms and we do have protocols and sogs and sops and things of that nature but not everything's going to fit perfectly in what is written out in a book, right? As you know, Absolutely. it's just not how it's not how it works. It wasn't so. a perfect example. So you, you know, Mark was on the show a few weeks ago. You just bought his book, and so now a firefighter is learning from a CIA, you know, a leader in the CIA. So again, you get out your silo and you go to other people, other countries, whatever it is, and we learn from each other. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's one thing that I like about your message and just about what what you are doing in general here um, is I've listened to a good a good handful of your podcast. I, I would say even more. I'd say 20, 20 plus, And I've already learned so much um, just from what, uh, you know, just, just various tactics, various leadership skills, like especially for Mark. Um, and and I'm learning more and I'm going to keep learning. So hopefully what I'm saying here today can kind of resonate with um other individuals and other listeners out there. That's kind of what I'm hoping. No, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it is. It's been a great conversation already. Well, you mentioned um, being the SWAT medic, so I'd love to transition into that. Um, you you said that one of the reasons why 
FD and PD has a good relationship in Akron is because of that program. And again, one very fortunate lens that I have being a fire gypsy, basically having worked East Coast, West Coast, um, just because of the trajectory of my family dynamic, um, is, you know, I've got to see, I mean, I truly believe some of the best, some of the worst and, you know, everything in between. And it nauseates me when I've seen that PD and FD don't get on. Actually, it was never my agency, but neighboring agencies. Um, and, you know, the same which I have seen, city, county, which is insane. I've literally argued with dispatch where the dotted line in the middle of the road dictates whose jurisdiction it is. And I've got a trailer park that's about to go up in flames and I'm on a, you know, EMS rescue at the time um, because of that BS. So talk to me about the the creation of that program in Akron. Um, and then, you know, how how you guys made it work, how you overcame some of those egos to start working side by side, which makes perfect fucking sense to any normal person to have FD and PD working together, not against each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was hired in December of 2003 and allegedly before I was hired. So I'm thinking, you know, some, sometime in the nineties, uh, and, and even before PD and, and, and FD did not get along in the city of Akron from what I hear. Um, and uh, the SWAT medic program was, uh, it kind of hit the ground running in 2001. Um, once that started, um, this relationship just formed and, and it grew and it grew and it grew. And I mean, it's just when I see SWAT, uh, SWAT operators out in the field that I know that are responding to where I'm at, if I'm in a hairy situation, when I see those guys, uh, it, it, that, that is huge because I know these guys are squared away and they're going to have my six. I'm going to have their six. Um, and I think this has also been sort of uh, fostered and um, kind of perpetuated also by both administrations. I think both administrations have has seen or have seen the um, enormous impact and the strength and the camaraderie and the impact on the community that we have. Because when the community sees PD and FD together, they're like, hey, wait, you know, this <clears throat> we feel we feel protected now because these guys aren't arguing. They're not fighting with each other. They're doing a great job. Um, you know, they're bringing everything to the table. Um, you know, we have we have security. We got great medics. And we got a great fire crew. Um, but but again, I, I think the SWAT medic program overall was probably the number one impetus that sort of started that ball rolling. Um, for that awesome connection between PD and AFD. And uh, unfortunately, uh, just like you said, there's some communities, some cities, um, you know, you hear all the stories about FDNY and uh, NYPD not getting along and things like that. I mean, there's always going to be that, that, that competition there. You know, like there's times when like I'll roll up to a scene and one of the police officers will go, oh, did I wake you up? You know, oh, I can see your pillow mark on the side of your face, you know, Oh, you're sleeping like, yeah, dude, we're on 24 hour shifts and you're on eight hour, 12 hour shifts. You know? By the way, you got donut sugar on your collar. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so you're getting to go, you know, home at night and sleep and things of that nature. And I'm not, you know, you know, just like you said, and I've heard a couple of your podcasts before where it's like when you're at the fire station, you're laying in bed, it's like someone's standing over your head with, with a, you know, a pair of symbols and they're just going to crash them at any time. And you just can't sleep. You really can't. Unless you're just so exhausted, you just pass out. The next thing you know, you got people coming in to wake you up because they said, hey, you're, we're missing a run right now. So you got to get your butt up, you know. 
Um, but no, that that relationship in the city of Akron is 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 very unique, and and I think that is from top down because our administration on AFD and APD get along very well. See, and that's so good to hear. You use acronym as the same Anaheim, Anaheim PD, and um, FD were beautiful. I mean, they, when I was there, at least, it was such a great relationship. And everyone, you know, we were all wearing the same uniform, you know, different colors, but we, you know, we were all Anaheim. So it was, you know, brilliant to see. And then it was more regional um, when I worked for Orange County, and you know, in the hood, you know, for lack of a better word, FD and PD were tight because we knew we knew each other. You know, if there was a shooting. We needed we need guns on the scene before we were going to be able to help you know whatever victim it was, and God forbid I mean it actually happened one of uh, the crews at fifty um, Brandon Coates was having dinner with the crew, he got he, you know he finished up he went out did a traffic stop and was murdered you know and that crew ran on him you know a few minutes later so um, you know when egos get in the way of that relationship I think it's completely unacceptable and you probably got the wrong people in those positions you need to to get good leaders in because if you can't unify PD and FD in your own city or county, then how the fuck can you call yourself a leader? It's, you know, I mean, that's just unacceptable in 2021. So it's so good to hear that there were, there were issues and you guys overcame it. Some, some real leaders stepped up and make creative relationships. And, and now you are where you are. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and sorry to cut you off, but no, please. Initially, sure. Initially, um, what they wanted to do is they wanted to train a few police officers to be medics. But then they realize, well, okay, we can send them to paramedic school, but just because they have a paramedic certification doesn't mean that they're going to be a good medic. So we want guys who do this day in and day out. So then that's when they came over to the fireside and said, hey, you know, we we need uh, we need some we need some good you know some good medics that you know want to step up and and do a little extra and become tactical medics. So it started in 2001 and it just evolved from there and it's it's just gotten better and better. So we just we just put on a new class. I was one of the instructors. I was excited to to help out and and uh, you know contribute every you know my education, training, and experience to to this new good group of guys. Um, and we put on some new SWAT operators as well. So it was a fun time. I was all back in May. So I was all gung ho, gung ho. Still am, but you know when you go through the training, that's you know you you sometimes. Uh, you start to relearn stuff that you learned. You're like, oh my gosh, I, I already knew that, but yeah, I haven't done that in a while. So I get to do that again, you know? And so you get to refresh. That's what's so good about training. You know, it's, it's great to have your educational foundation um, through, through books and presentations and things of that nature. But if, if you don't take it from the brain to the hands uh, through training, it, it's, it gets lost. You know, it's just like math, right? If you don't do math, you're going to lose it eventually. Or in my case, even if you do do math, you still lose it. <laughs> my, I have definitely not got a, whatever mathematic, you know, uh, capacity in my brain. I think luckily the high school math we needed to be a medic or, or, you know, right up as an engineer was enough. But over and above that, it is full meltdown in the gearing brain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, my math isn't too bad, but, uh, my son's way, way more intelligent than I am with math. He's been through calculus and, trig and all those courses and yeah he's a uh, student at uh, the university of akron he's going through their army rotc program so he's eventually going to get into nursing and maybe even be a doctor one day so i don't know we'll see we'll see what happens with that but yeah it's uh my my grandfather like i said was in the navy fought in pearl harbor he um he uh he was great at math like growing up if you had a question about math you called grandpa alden <laughs> that's who you call that reminds me we almost missed the grandpa story 
because I want to get onto the explosives next. But before we do, your granddad has a pretty cool story. So why don't we just kind of take a tangent while you mention him and, and uh, talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, my uh, my grandfather, um, he he entered the Navy, and I'm, I'm not sure what year it was, but uh, uh, and I'm not sure what year um, or how many years he had on in the Navy when when Pearl Harbor hit. But it was, I believe, December seventh in the morning at in 1941. Um, I could be off there, but uh, hopefully I'm not. Maybe we can edit that. But <laughs> no, but um, it uh, it was a Sunday when uh, when the Japanese hit. Uh, Pearl Harbor in, in Hawaii. And my grandfather was on a tender ship. He was a machinist mate, which is, I guess would be like your modern day engineer. And so again, he was pretty good at math. So he was an engineer on a ship and he, he never drank. Um, very rarely did he drink. Um, if he did, it was maybe a, you know, a beer or so. And a bunch of his buddies came up to him on, on, uh, on Saturday night and they said, Hey, you know, Hey, let's go out. You know, we're here. Let's go out and maybe chase around some women or whatever and, and have a couple drinks. And my grandpa's like, nah, I'm good. And, you know, I just, I don't drink. And they said, no, come on, let's go, let's go. So long story short, they, they talked him into going out and drinking and one leads to the next one leads to the next. Now he's drunk. Uh, he gets back to his room, to his bunk and he, you know, falls asleep or passes out. And, uh, he said about six o'clock in the morning, maybe six fifteen. he wakes up, he said, uh, felt like heck and had a headache and was real dehydrated and something kept telling him, Hey, get up, go down and get some aspirin and some water from the infirmary. And, um, so he's like, ah, no, whatever. So he goes back to sleep for another 10 minutes, which he said, something kept waking him up, get up, get up, get up, go down and get some, and like, well, it's probably the hangover that woke you up, you know, your headache. Um, so he goes down to the infirmary. He's sitting there for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. He gets his medication, he gets his water. Uh, he starts to get hydrated and all of a sudden he starts hearing explosions and he runs down um, one of the hallways. He looks out of a porthole and he sees um, uh, Japanese planes dropping bombs and uh, he felt the concussive force of one bomb that was dropped way too close to his ship, uh, which caused his ship to rock. It knocked him down a scuttle hatch and he fell down a ladder, uh, probably 12 to 15 feet, hurt his back, climbed back up, ran to his room. His room was on fire. Um, so he had to go fight. Um, I forget what, uh, I forget what machine gun or whatever weapon he had to use, um, on the ship. I forget what he told me, but he first, he had to fight. And then his second job was, and I, I think this is where some of his, what I would consider his PTSD came in was when, uh, he had to, um, drop some of the smaller boats into the water and go pull dead Americans out of the water. And that's when he said he saw, you know, you know, skin would, you know, deglove off of arms and backs and necks and things of that nature. Um, but he had to rest, you know, try and make rescues, which were usually just recoveries. Um, at that time by then, you know, after the fight was over for that day. Um, but he had to pull dead Americans into, into the ships get him back up on deck. And he said, by the end, you know, because every, every, uh, um, Navy seaman has to be uh, a firefighter. Right. So, um, they fought the fires. They, they put the fires out in the, in the, in the bunks and in his room. And then he said, uh, they were doing, um, salvage and overhaul and he pulled his actual mattress out and he could see his name, his name tag on his mattress said, Kay Alden. His name was Kenneth Alden. 
and um, he found a chunk of shrapnel about the size of uh, uh, maybe the size of like a tangerine stuck down into his mattress. And, you know, he says, hey, if it wouldn't have been for my life saving hangover, I wouldn't be here today and you wouldn't be here today. And we kind of laughed about it. But, yeah, he had a he had a write up in the uh, Springfield News and Sun about it, uh, about a three page article. And then the uh, the caption was uh, life saving hangover. <laughs> So, yeah, so unfortunately he's not with us to this day, but, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the men that I 100% respect and will respect for the rest of my life because he taught me a lot and, um, you know, he fought for our country and he fought for our freedom and, uh, um, yeah, been through a lot of stuff and, and, you know, I mean, it took the toll on him and just like you and I spoke before it, I think that, and I, I just, you know, you you kind of brought up the word epiphany earlier and it's, I think I kind of had, had an epiphany about myself uh, because he and I are very much alike. And, um, you know, I think his, his obsessive compulsive uh, tendencies were because of the PTSD that he endured in Pearl Harbor. And, you know, just like I told you, uh, you know, when you walked into a room, you know, it, it, even if you sat in a chair, you had to make sure that that, that uh, like if it was a, like a velvet chair, you had to make sure that the velvet was facing a certain way. You couldn't just sit down and get up with your butt mark in the chair. You had to make sure that you wiped it, you know, swiped it a certain way because he wanted his room ship shape. And there were certain rooms you couldn't even walk into it at his house. You know, he wanted everything squared away in ship shape. And if it wasn't, then <laughs> it was your butt. You know, he would get on you about that. So and and when I say the word uh, when I say the word epiphany, I think I kind of mirror him when it comes to things like that, because like at the fire station, if I walk into the lieutenant's office and I go to sit at my desk and I see that the C shift officer doesn't have everything where it should be. I'm like, OK, where's the cross shift book? All right. Where's you know, where's this book? Where's that book? Why isn't the computer facing this way? I got to have everything my way squared away. And uh, so. Yeah. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe that's just like you said, maybe that's my way of controlling my environment or trying to control chaos. Well, in the OCD has come up over and over again. And, you know, I, the old days, you know, we thought OCD, oh, that's that crazy person that does the light switch 14 times right. before they leave the house. No, and, it's not. Uh, no. And they know it may manifest that way. Absolutely. But, you know, obviously it seems to be coming from, you know, really, uh, anxiety, I would assume anxiety, not depression. So the anxiety element of mental health challenges, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, one would have to assume that he did have anxiety because of that, because of everything that he saw. And, you know, just from, from, from his, his era to just did not talk about those kind of things. They just didn't. You know, it's, they got back. Okay. Well, what am I going to do now? Well, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to start a family. I'm going to get a house. That's what they did. And they, and, and they just worked and he just never really talked about it. And then after he left the Navy, um, he worked at Wright Patterson air force base, which is literally adjacent to the graduate school that I went to called Wright state university when I, that's where I met my wife. Um, but he worked there for, 30 some years. Uh, he was a foreman. He worked in the wind tunnels, uh, testing the airplanes to make sure that they could stand uh, certain types of, you know, winds and G forces and things of that nature. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd always ask him questions like, Hey, you know, Wright Patterson air force base is considered like 
one of the most important bases in the United States, and it, it, but it's not that big. Why is it not that big? He's like, well, where do you think the majority of the base is at? And I'm like, I don't know. And he goes, well, a lot of it's underground. I'm like, oh, really? Interesting. So, and I'm like, well, tell me more. And he's like, well, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I have to kill you. Yeah, well, yeah, he had a he had a security clearance, so yeah, he 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 took all that to his grave, you know. And then you hear all the rumors about how, you know, the aliens from Roswell were taken to Wright Patterson Air Force Base and and you know whatever. But you know, I don't know, and I don't think he knew anything about that. But I, I think he knew a lot that he just really couldn't talk about. Yeah, amazing perspective. Well, I guess a kind of pseudo. Um, you know, tangent from that. We were talking about explosions and your grandfather's near miss. You know, tell me about your journey into studying explosions in your, you know, firefighter slash SWAT medic capacity, because I think that that was another interesting part of our conversation. I want to make sure that we, you know, get on here. A lot of us aren't well versed with with that arena. I mean, I think, you know, some of the training we get, you know, you're thinking about an explosion, looking for secondary devices, being kind of cognizant of not being a target, but that's kind of where it ends. So, you know, walk me through how you found yourself studying that in the first place and then, and then give us some lessons learned that will help people that are listening. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, it kind of all started for me. Uh, let's see, it would have been 2000, maybe 13 or 14, I had been on the SWAT medic team for about three or four years. And, uh, so I was, you know, starting to get a little bit of clout with the guys, uh, with the operators, um, and some of the command crew from the APD side. And, uh, the, um, one of the training sergeants who's now our captain, um, cause the ranks go a little bit different on the FD side versus the PD side. Um, so he's a captain now. So he, he commands the SWAT team, um, uh, captain Yoey. He came up to me one day and said, Hey, uh, if you could, I'd like you to put together a nice blast injuries presentation. And, you know, as medics, we study trauma and all various kinds of trauma and blast injuries would be one of those. Um, so I'm like, oh gosh, you know, when somebody asks me to do a project, I'm going to do it 110%. I'm not just going to, you know, go up there and willy nilly just throw some stuff together. So I was like, okay, what can I do? So I was like, well, when do you need this by? He said, well, just here in, you know, maybe like two more months, but I just wanted to give you a, like a, a double heads up so you can get everything prepared. And I want a presentation and PowerPoints and blah, blah, blah. So I said, all right, <clears throat> well, what I'll do is I'll look into going to, it's called a, a, a bomb school in Socorro, New Mexico. Um, and they have various trainings down there. Um, you know, and, and over the, over the years, I've been to two of their courses down there and they're phenomenal courses. Uh, there's a guy down, down there named Mike Calloway. And if you, if you need his number later to, to, to share with other individuals, I can give you his number. Um, but yeah, they can just go to, uh, New Mexico tech training. Um, it's free for first responders. Um, they have, it's called IRTB is their first course. It's incident response to terrorist bombings. Um, and again, it's for police, fire, medics, nurses, doctors, um, I, I think even, I think, uh, people in construction can go as well. Um, and then the next course was called PRBI. Let me make sure. No, I'm sorry. PRSBI, uh, prevention and response to suicide bombing incidents. Um, that's another course down there again for first responders, firefighters, medics, please. Um, there's, uh, ATF courses, uh, in Huntsville, Alabama that, uh, are post-blast investigations. Um, it's also for bomb techs. Bomb techs can go there and they'll teach you how to make homemade explosives and various devices. And there's also different FBI courses. Uh, but the course in Socorro, New Mexico was kind of how it all started for me. Uh, I went, it's a, it's a four and a half, five day course. Uh, it's paid for by the federal government. If you're a first responder, uh, you get a free flight. 
Um, you get a, a, a rental car that's free. Uh, you get a free hotel stay and they give you a per diem throughout the week uh, for food and things of that nature. And you just go and you learn and you learn so much. And um, I was able to bring that information back to the fire department and to the police department and put together a pretty good squared away presentation, not just on the blast injuries itself on the medical side, but also um, on the various explosives, not just commercial and military grade explosives, but also homemade explosives, which is what you're kind of starting to see now. And the reason why is because it's more difficult to be traced by law enforcement. So that's why homemade explosives are starting to kind of come to, I guess, come to a head now. And you're starting to see like, you know, TATP, for example, triacetone triproxide. And there's various elements that kind of go in to make that explosive. But if you have the ingredients and you have the will and the know-how, and I mean, unfortunately, this stuff's on the internet, by the way. I don't know if you've heard of the magazine called Inspire. No? No, I haven't, but I remember you telling me about it. I think we need to yeah. tell the audience. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, – it's, and I'm not even sure what edition it's in. It's the 14th or 15th, 15th edition, I believe, right now. And I'm sure there will be you know, some FBI guys and ATF guys that will correct me later on that one. So it's a magazine that was written by an American and other individuals. Um, but the American, uh, his name was Enwar Awalaki. And he was born in Yemen, I believe, but he became a U.S. citizen. And um, it's kind of ironic because he lived in New Mexico and he wrote the magazine. And there's a section in the magazine. It's called How to Make a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mom. And the entire magazine is to effect demise on the entire Western civilization to kill Americans, kill British, kill anybody from Europe, kill anybody that does not believe how he believes or how some of his factions uh believe kill uh, kill people in the country that he decided to become a citizen of yes and he actually went to colleges in the united states as well god whatever anyway, college that was needs to be closed down immediately they're not doing a very good job <laughs> well he actually and i did a lot of research on him but he was killed in a cia drone strike in 2012 in yemen by the way so i love happy endings carry on no i do too i do too <laughs> So, um, anyways, again, this stuff can be found online. I mean, there's other, there's like the poor, uh, what's it called? Uh, poor man, James Bond book. Um, there's, you know, again, inspire, uh, there's different magazines that'll teach you, you know, how to, you know, how to utilize certain circuits. If it's a series circuit to make a bomb, if, you know, series parallel circuit, a parallel circuit, uh, power supplies, what kind of power supplies can you use to make certain devices? And that's what really concerns me because back in April in the city of Akron, we had a few devices that were found. Uh, one device was placed on the railroad tracks over on the east side of Akron, which is my district uh, area, my battalion. And uh, luckily there was no explosive material found inside, the, inside of the container, but the firing train was set up. I mean, there was a power, there was a power supply uh, so they had, they had like, you know, like a nine volt battery. Um, they had a switch, they had an initiator and I'm not, I'm not sure what the initiator is, um, or I'm, I'm sorry, was in that particular case. Um, but if, if you find a device that has a blasting cap, that's a very, very sophisticated individual because now they have access to a blasting cap. Where are they getting that from? Is it commercial grade? Is it military grade? And, um, but nowadays what they're doing, and this was done in the, um, in the Boston bombing was they'll take a, a Christmas tree bulb and they'll, they'll light the tip of it and they'll get it real hot and then they'll stick it in really cold water and then they'll crack the tip off 
and then they'll use the, the, the little filament on the inside. They'll use that as a bridge wire. And that bridge wire is what produces heat. Okay, so that's your initiator. Because if you look at how, if you can, if you know how fire works, you know how a bomb works, right? So what do you need? You need a form of stimuli, which is the form of heat. Could be friction, impact, shock, heat, electrostatic discharge. Um, you need uh, some kind of oxidizer. Could be oxygen, you know, ambient air oxygen. Could be an oxidizer like fertilizer, things of that nature. <clears throat> and then you need a chemical chain reaction, right? And you need those to mix. So you need that 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 heat source, that oxidizer, that chemical chain reaction, and you need and you need all that to mix. That's pretty much in a nutshell. If you know how fire works, then you know how to make a bomb. And you need some kind of fuel source, right? So your fuel source would be like your explosive material, things of that nature. Um, but again, going back to the Christmas tree bulb, is that little filament acts as a heat source to initiate whatever that explosive material is. And that's how it is on the inside of a blasting cap. The inside of a blasting cap has a bridge wire, which is just like a filament, which then produces heat. And then that heat will then detonate whatever it is inside of that blasting cap. Usually it's like RDX, which means research development experiment or, um, yeah, research, research development experiment. Um, and actually RDX was, uh, I believe it was invented from the British back during World War II. And it was put on the hulls of the German U-boats to punch holes through to sink the boats. And it's a, it's a great material. Um, but RDX is usually on the inside of blasting caps or um, something called pinthrite, called PETN, is used on the inside of blasting caps. But anyways, um, you need that initiator. You need a container. You know, it could be plastic container, paper container, um, metal container. Uh, you need that explosive material. It could be anything, you know. TATP could be black powder, smokeless powder, flash powder, which are, you know, more of your low explosives could be C4, which is a high explosive. Um, and it could be, um, and then your next, um, element would be shrapnel. So shrapnel is pretty much, it's, it's different than fragmentation. And that's when uh, a lot of the times people say, well, I took shrapnel from this bomb or I took shrapnel for, well, no, that was fragmentation from the container or from something around it, but no shrapnel is what's it. It's actually put into the device, like nails, bolts, BBs, ball bearings, things of that nature, marbles, to increase the lethality of that explosive device. So if, you know, and this is one thing that I, that I bring back, like, you know, you had referenced earlier, bring this back from, from your uh, training that you have to your fire companies and to your police departments and, and to your SWAT medic teams is, you know, if you walk into a scene and you see an IED, Okay. How do you know? First of all, how you know, how do you know what's an IED? Well, just think spices, right? So you got switch, power source, initiator, container, explosive material, and then shrapnel. If you have spices, you have a fully constructed device and you need to back out. And there's a acronym that we use called RAIN, which means recognize it, avoid it, isolate it, which means, all right, after you back out, you know, put up your fire tape or your police tape or whatever, and then notify you need to notify your alphabet soup organizations, which would be like FBI, ATF, DEA, whatever, whoever you need. Well, probably not DEA, but ATF, FBI. Make sure that you, you know, inform these individuals, hey, we got some stuff going on here. Because there was a story that we were told down there in Socorro a few years ago where a firefighter from New Jersey, and I'm not sure what city or municipality that he worked in, uh, he had just gotten back from his training in Socorro, and a few weeks later, they were dispatched to 
a still response and it was just smoke in a house. So they, you know, they, they get unseen, they, they do their scene size up, uh, they look around the house, they do their 360, they really don't see much, they look inside and they see some smoke inside of the house. I'm like, oh, well, okay, now we got smoke, so we got we to gotta force entry. They knock, they knock, no answer, they force entry, they get inside and it was smoke coming from uh, one of the stoves in there because they were boiling urine and he said it smelled like a terrible urinal inside. He said there was probably 50 to 60 jugs of urine just sitting around the around the um, uh, kitchen that was boiled down. It was real thick. And they're like, why is there boiled urine in here? This is nasty. Who's who's peeing in jugs and boiling it down on the stove? And um, that, that that particular firefighter had had that training in Socorro and was like, um, they're using the urea and the uric acid as a fuel and explosives. I think there's something going on here. And I, th I think they found some bags of fertilizer in the next room, like a lot of bags of fertilizer. So a fertilizer is your oxidizer. So if you have your oxidizer and your, and your, and your urea as your fuel, now all you need is what? This, a stimulant. Uh, yeah, a blasting cap or something. Absolutely. A blasting cap or, you know, a, a Christmas tree bulb, some, some form of heat. You know, as I said, friction, impact, shock, heat, electrostatic discharge. And so anyways – um, they back out. He tells his LT, Hey, call, call law enforcement, law enforcement calls ATF FBI. They come in and come to find out the individuals that were in this house that were renting, that were renting this house. were going to, um, affect demise on, uh, the subway system in New York city. So luckily that firefighter, just because of that training that he had, he was able to kind of be the impetus to stop a terrorist activity and, and, and see that stuff you don't hear in the media. That's, you know, I mean, that's, that's stuff that goes by the wayside. You just don't hear that kind of stuff. There's so many perpetrated incidents that are stymied and stopped by our law enforcement officers and even firefighters and medics out there that you just don't hear about. You don't hear in the news. And I don't understand why, why, why wouldn't you want, Hey, you know, these guys were able to find this terrible situation and able to stop it, you know, and, and it happens all the time. But again, we just don't hear about it. Yeah, you know, no, and, it, and that's what's so nice about this conversation, though. I mean, you know, there's people literally in other countries that just heard you say that, you know, and to me, that tells me one of two things. If you walk in and smells a piss, it's either a bomb factory or B shift just worked. But either way, <laughs> yeah. Well, for us, for us, it would be C shift because <laughs> you're B shift, huh? No, I'm A. Oh, you are A. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I was B shift in my last place too, so I'd be in all three of them, so I can make fun of them all, but. But no, but joking apart, and it's the same even tragically. When we lose a firefighter or a police officer to suicide or overdose, it's it's hush-hushed. And the more we hush-hush, the more the apparent numbers seem small. But behind the curtain, as you and I get to see, whether it's explosives, whether it's the, you know, the horrendous uh, death and destruction in the community, whether it's within our own profession – you realize that that's complete facade, that the numbers are actually way worse. So I think it's doing an absolute disservice by not reporting on this. And, you know, especially with that, I mean, that to me is an incredibly uplifting, optimistic story. The same way as, you know, when we were thinking that this COVID virus was going to decimate the population and it ended up being still taking lives and each individual life was was very, very sad, but the numbers were way, way smaller I don't understand why there wasn't a celebration that wasn't optimistic. That wasn't, hey, this is so much better than we thought. We're still going to do X, Y, and Z to keep it in place. But while you're going through those, here's some great news for you, but not at all. And even to this day, 
oh, this De- you know Delta variant. I don't want to get down the COVID path, but my point is, they only report what they want to report, and very, very seldom is it anything that's uplifting and optimistic or true. Yeah, you that know? too. <laughs> I mean, and and unfortunately, and I'm not saying it's 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 the media 100 percent 360. That's not true, but a lot of it's just. It's it's either left out or just just totally embellished, you know. It's either left out or embellished, and and you know just kind of going back to the COVID thing, and and I guess maybe this is from what I get from my father growing up is always to try to always see the silver lining. Um, back when COVID started, at least here in the U.S., um, I. Uh, I spoke with an, with an individual from, it's called the Clarion Foundation. And the Clarion Foundation, they do a lot for like fire engineering magazines, um, fire rescue, firefighter nation. I'm not sure if they do much with, with PD, but they also do a lot with the GEMS, uh, you know, Journal of EMS. So I've always wanted to speak at FDIC, uh, especially on explosives. And so I called this lady from fire engineering from the Clarion Foundation. I said, hey, I want to speak at FDIC maybe here in the, in the next couple of years. I, I know it's hard to get in, but what do I do? I said, you know, do I have to give my proposal? And she's like, yeah, hey, you got to put a proposal in. She goes, but the best way to do it is to write some, some articles. So I'm like, well, we're quarantined. What the heck else am I going to do? You know, try to find that silver lining. So I, I wrote a bunch of articles for fire engineering. I wrote one on homemade explosives. Uh, I wrote one on fire investigations with another colleague of mine, and then I wrote um, one on uh, human behavior and situational awareness with like scene safety with another company that I'm kind of working with now called SLC Squared. And then um, I wrote one on tactical medicine, which is coming out in December, uh, but my next one's coming out in August. So, you know, again, just to kind of, you know, I guess throw that silver lining out there. If, if there's any listeners out there who subscribe to Fire Engineering, I got some some pretty cool articles, I think, um, that are out there. Uh, the one on homemade explosives came out in December of 2020. That was in the supplement. And then the one in January was on fire investigations. And that came out in January of 2021. And then my new one coming out is going to be actually, I think tomorrow it comes out, comes out in August. And that's on the, uh, human behavior kind of stuff. And then the tactical medicines in December. So, yeah. Brilliant. Well, good luck with the uh, application. I actually, I looked at it myself, and I don't, I don't even know why I did because I don't want to get up and talk. I'm not that guy, you know. I'm 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 not a well well spoken person when it comes to monologuing and and being an expert in an area. But I saw the big like in however many thousand words submit your proposal. And I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's too much, too much like hard work for me. But, but I think it's a great, and I have never been to FDIC, so I really wanted this year was just, there was too much going on. So it's probably going to be next year. So if you do get to present next year, hopefully I'll be there too. It'll be my breaking or, you know, popping my uh, FDIC cherry finally. Yeah, come on in, man. Yeah, I'll let you know. I'll let you know if I get it. So it's still up in the air right now. It's, uh, I got to go up against a lot of hard chargers who have been there for a long time. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think people want to hear some fresh information, though. So hopefully there is a bit of a changing of the guard. We've got to share, you know, share the time. So can't talk about standpipes all the time. No, standpipes and building construction. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's a great place to transition. So I think we've covered everything that we did before. And then we've added the things that, that we hadn't prior. So I think this has really been a great conversation. The first uh, 
question I love to ask. Is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed or completely unrelated? Hmm. Wow, there's a lot of them. Um, actually, I do have a couple right here. Um, I know I referenced uh, Mark Polymeropoulos's book, um, and I actually heard that from his podcast that he did with you, Clarity in Crisis. I would highly recommend that, um, the various leadership steps and facets to being a great leader. Um, I read that in its entirety, and I would highly recommend that book uh, to anybody, uh, really anybody in general, but especially anybody who is um, an officer in police or fire or even military. Um, you know, it it really articulates how to how to treat your people. You know, how to treat your crews, treat them the right way, and and step up and be a true leader. I do. I love that book. Um, there was another book I read a few years ago called Incognito, and um, it's called The Secret Lives of the Brain. And if you really want to know about the brain and about human psychology, read this book. Um, it's something that a friend of mine purchased for me years ago because he and I would uh, have many discussions at the fire table, at the, you know, at the dinner table uh, regarding psychology and sociology. Um, but it talks about uh, uh, just different experiences that people go through. Uh, it, it also gets into a little bit of science with uh, you know, like the um, primitive part of the brain versus the executive part of the brain and how cognitive dissonance works. You know, in other words, like, okay, you have your primitive part of your brain that's telling you one thing because it's picking up on all these different symbols and signals and your executive part of your brain is saying, ah, nah, it's kind of in denial. Like, nah, we're not in danger right now. But then, you know, then next thing you know, danger strikes. So, um, no, it's, it's, it's a great book when it comes to the mind and psychology. Um, and that's from David Eagleman. Is his name? And last book that I wanted to talk about, and this was an individual that I met when I first became a lieutenant. Um, I went to his class and I bought his book, and his name's Dr. Richard Gassaway, G-A-S-A-W-A-Y, and it's called Situational Awareness Matters. And this book. Uh, is great for company level officers and even captains like battalion captains and battalion chiefs. And it just kind of walks you through um, the importance of tactical patience and, you know, making sure you do a 360 and how you treat your crews and when to call a mayday and knowing your equipment and knowing your rigs. And again, just, you know, doing the right thing the right way, even when nobody's looking, you know, just because you walk in the fire station and the crew before you says, well, Hey, I'm doing a, I'm doing a 48 hour trade. Um, so, you know, I've already checked the rig out. It's cool. Well, no, no, you, you still check the rig out. You don't take the guy's word for it because you never know. So absolutely. All right. What about a movie and or documentary? Um, documentaries, I would say any documentary on frontline. Have you ever, um, seen any of the documentaries on frontline? Um, some of them. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what the subjects were, but I, I've definitely watched some before. Yeah, there's there's various subjects. I mean, just just like your podcast, there's various you know podcasts, various individuals that you have um, that you speak with and that get their message out there. But there's, uh, 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 I would say there's information that you can learn, you know, all the way from chromatic or I'm sorry, traumatic uh, chronic encephalopathy (CTE), uh, like you know that football players you and I had spoke on that before. 
uh, you know, people who have head injuries and things like that. Uh, there's documentaries on that. There's documentaries on ISIS. There's documentaries on the Taliban. There's, doc- there's documentaries on Iraq. Uh, there's documentaries on uh, policing in the United States. Um, just a lot of different various uh, controversial things uh, that go on in our in our lives and in our world on Frontline. I would highly recommend uh, just getting on there and kind of scrolling through the different videos. There's a little video icon that you can click and you click on the video icon and just say, okay, well, what's, what's the new video for today? Or you can scroll back through all the way. And I think some of their uh, frontline videos and documentaries started back in maybe 08. So there's some really interesting information if you scroll all the way back through. Um, what else? And then movie, I like older movies from like the 80s and 90s. So, uh, and I know you and I spoke on this before, but um, there was a movie called Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino. And just the way that everything about, you know, just to kind of preface this movie, he's, he's a blind individual. He was a former uh, lieutenant colonel in the army and um, his family's trying to get away for, for the weekend for holiday and he doesn't want to go. So he needs an aide and he gets his aide from this prep school and it's this young kid. He's like 17, 18 years old and he has to take care of him. They end up going to New York and doing all this stuff that, uh, I don't know if you saw the movie or not, but yeah, uh, I did. It was great. Okay. Okay. So it's just when, when they're sitting, um, uh, when there's, you know, after they get back from New York, uh, Al Pacino is sort of like, um, I guess acts as a parent for him and sort of advocates for him. And this individual, his aide is, uh, one of the individuals who was looked at as doing something bad at school. He was, uh, blamed for, uh, I guess misconduct at school. So he just stands up and fires away at this headmaster and, uh, you know, pretty much just says, Hey, this kid's integrity is intact. I know him. And he, it, I think the main message for me is that it's the advocation. It's, it's, he's advocating for somebody else. And that's, that's how I feel that that's what I do for my guys and my gals at the station. I, I advocate for them. You know, I help them out. If there's any issues that they have, if they're struggling on the paramedic side or the fire side, I'm going to help train them and I'm going to do it the right way. So that's, that's one of the reasons why I really love that movie because it just kind of reminds me of myself with how I advocate for my crews. So brilliant. Yeah. It's a very, very different, um, suggestion than, you know, than prior and a good reason for, for liking it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then uh, a few good men. I'm sure you've seen that. <laughs> yes, yes. It has been but quoted Jeff, more than once, I believe. Gosh, just how he just just thunders away. I mean, him and Tom Cruise back and forth. Just you know how they just thunder away at each other when he's up on the stand. I just love that movie. It's just so powerful. Um, you know, just all the different underpinnings and uh, you know issues that are going on with uh, with that whole movie. I just absolutely love it. Um, and then, um, I think that'll be about it with the movies and the documentaries. Brilliant. With some good titles there. Um, well, the next question then, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, actually I have three, um, that, that just have always come to mind. Um, and I threw this out before, but his name's Lynn, L-Y-N-N Westover. W-E-S-T-O-V-E-R, it's one word. Um, and he's a co-founder of a company called SLC Squared. And what they do is they, um, and actually I'm, I've just kind of started working with them. I met them at a conference a few years ago. 
And I approached them and I said, hey, you know, you guys do a lot of uh, special training and situational awareness and scene safety kind of training through this special concept that they developed over the years, he and his co-founder, Jay Cease. And I said, hey, here's my card. I think fire medics could use this information because, you know, when police get dispatched to a situation, they're already on the alert. They're already in the red zone, right? Just as Lieutenant Colonel Grossman would say, they're already in the red zone. Us, we're not quite in the red zone. We're, we're almost there, but not quite, especially if it's a you know, dangerous situation. But we're constantly up on people. We're a lot closer to people, to patients, to victims, to suspects than the police are. The police kind of keep their distance. You know, they have weapons, things like that, that they can defend themselves. We don't. And I said, you know, firefighters, medics, nurses, doctors, we are like a pretty, pretty high majority of individuals out there who are getting assaulted a lot. I mean, we are a highly assaulted profession, as you know, you know, with you being a fire medic yourself, um, spit on, kick, punch, stab. I mean, you know, just, just like the firefighter in San Diego a few years ago, they got stabbed, you know, twice and almost got stabbed in the head. I mean, thank God he didn't. Thank God he's alive. And I, I did listen to that podcast. That was awesome, by the way. Yeah. Ben uh, Vernon. Amazing, man. Yeah, yeah, that was an amazing podcast. I'd, I'd, I'd love to meet him and talk to him one day as well, just to you know, kind of get some other perspective from him. Um, uh, where was I at? I you were talking about um, SLC squared. Yeah, yeah, SLC. So, um, yeah, so what these guys do is they have this six-layer concept, and I'm not going to get into it because it, it would be too confusing right now. But anyways, what what the concept is about is to enact situational awareness and, like I said, scene safety for first responders. Um, and you know, I have their information. That's probably the best way to contact me as well. Cause I'm not a big social media kind of guy and I can throw out my, uh, my email address later when you ask me as well. Um, or if you ask me so, but yeah, Lynn Westover would be a great guy. He was a, a Marine force recon. Yeah, I think, believe he was a sniper and he has a lot of really, really good information that he can talk about and, uh, PTSD and TBI and things of that nature. Um, and then a fellow firefighter, best friend of mine, uh, he and I came on together 17 and a half years ago. He and I walked into the fire academy together. Uh, we had no background in fire, no background in EMS. Um, I pulled up, he pulls up, we get out of the, we get out of our cars and we start walking up to the academy door and he looks at me and he goes, Hey, what's your name? I'm like, my name's J.R. Alden. He's like, I'm Matt Jensen. I'm like, he's like, are you an EMT? I'm like, nope. He goes, oh, man, thank gosh you're not, because I'm not either. He goes, you have your firefighter, too? I'm like, nope. I'm like, well, here we go, buddy. We're going to start this journey together. So he and I became, like, best friends, and his wife is best friends with my wife. So we, you know, hang out. He's th – this guy has seen everything. I mean, this this guy has seen the worst of the worst. Like, you talked about having a black, a black cloud hanging over your head when you were in the fire service. Well, that's what this guy has. And But he's he's always able to, to always make a, a bad situation good. I, I would take this guy as one of my crew members any day. So I'd highly recommend talking to him. And then one more guy, just real quick, is uh, uh, District Chief Art Dobbins. Um, you and I spoke on him, uh, I think, last week via telephone. But uh, he invented something called the Dragon Strap for SWAT teams. And I believe he ended up selling the rights to a company. I'm not sure what the company is. He would be able to articulate that better than me. Um, but he uh, he was my SWAT team leader as a SWAT medic uh, when I first arrived on the team when I hit the ground running in 2010, and uh, you know he threw a lot of great training and uh, articles downrange to me that really helped me get started in the SWAT medic program. And he's a great leader, and uh, I highly recommend you interview him as well. So, be about yeah, there's some great great people there. Thank you so much. 
Um, the very last question before we make sure people do know how to reach out to you. Um, what do you do to decompress? Well, um, my most favorite, I'm not going to tell you because that involves my wife and that's personal. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, no, really. Uh, what we like to do is we love to vacation. We love the beach. We're big time beach people. Uh, you know, I I used to be a scuba diver, rest and recover scuba diver for AP, or for uh, AFD for a little bit for about a year and a half. I used to love diving, but I just can't because my sinuses now. So we like snorkel, um, go on vacation, hit the beach. Um, I, I like to read. I like to research and write. Writing really helps me kind of get everything out. You know, just kind of that almost in the psychological realm, the free association. You just just start writing. And, and wherever it takes you, it takes you and you can edit it later. No, I think I pretty much hit everything. Just exercise, research, writing, vacations, uh, hanging with the family. I like to read a lot and hanging with my two dogs, uh, my uh, Australian shepherds, uh, Chewy and Zeus. All right. Well, then um, the very last thing, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way? And you mentioned email. I, I admire you for not having social media. So uh, what would be the easiest place for people to find you? Um, I would say, uh, my email address is, uh, J and then A L D E N. So it's just, um, first letter of my first name and then my last name, Alden seven, seven at yahoo.com. And then, um, info at SLC squared.com. And then I also have a phone number for SLC squared because again, I'm going to be teaching with them a lot here soon. Uh, we actually have a conference coming up in, uh, Verona, New York at the end of this uh, coming month, at the end of August, that we're going to be teaching uh, some tactical EMS uh, situational awareness to police and uh, SWAT medics. But um, I do have a phone number if you want that. Um, Yeah, you can give that. And what I'll do is I'll put SLC Squared's website on the webpage for the show as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's just www.slcsquared.com. 929-277-8867. Well, Jared, I want to say thank you so much. It was it was amazing meeting yourself and your wife, and thank you again to her for initially, you know, starting this relationship. Um, but you know, it's funny sometimes you know, the universe plays these tricks where we end up doing a, a podcast again. It's happened, I mean, barely a handful of times, but each time the interview ends up being even better because you're just layering onto what you discussed prior. So. Thank you again for uh, you know for sitting down and 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 doing this over. I think it was. Um, we, we, we definitely stretched out and reached some, some more interesting areas than last time. But I know that, you know, people listening will get a lot, whether it's the explosive side or, you know, the, the kind of view into some of the juvenile issues that you saw. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Hey, James, I'm, I'm totally 100% honored. And I'm, I'm so glad that my wife was, uh, was able to find you on, uh, on Instagram and, uh, you know, and that she, kind of pushed me that way. She's like, Hey, just, you know, like I said earlier at the beginning, she's like, just direct message him and just, just try it. Just take a shot in the dark. And, and, uh, I did. So I got brave there and I threw it out there and you, you DM me back real quick. And I'm like, man, this guy's cool. So yeah, I'm, I'm just so, so happy to, so happy to be here and to, you know, uh, have the ability and the articulation to get my message out there to all of your listeners. And, uh, I think you do a great job and, and believe me, Believe me, 100%. My wife says the same thing. Your your message is getting out there to everybody, and um, you know, not just from us spreading it, obviously, but just just from what you're doing, you know. So keep it up. You're doing a great job. Love it. 